Welcome to One Hour in the Past, a podcast series presented by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Center and hosted by me, Adrian Petrie, Visitor Services Coordinator and Kathleen Powell, Curator and Supervisor of Historical Services. Our community is filled with diverse stories and we recognize that our story begins with the Indigenous peoples of this land. We acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on lands that have been inhabited by Indigenous peoples for millennia and we would like to honor the centuries of Indigenous people who walked on Turtle Island before us. As museum professionals, our jobs are manyfold. Managers, curators, interpreters, researchers, and much, much more. We often find ourselves pining for some more interesting and perhaps wild history in our daily work. Our podcast begins with the idea that a simple search for information can lead you in some strange and wonderful directions. Like Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, historical research has a tendency to lead you down a winding rabbit hole that takes you off your original path towards some new and amazing historical places. Each of us have just one hour to research a topic, 60 minutes. That's it. <laughs> it's not enough. We research separately and then come back together to discuss where one hour in the past has taken us. If you're joining us for the first time on One Hour in the Past, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and head back in the archives to catch other episodes of historical adventures on topics like hats, soda water, Thanksgiving, telephones, stuffed animals, and recently in the news, daylight savings time. On this episode of One Hour in the Past, we will be discussing our research into the fur trade. So let's get right to it and head down the rabbit hole. Enjoy the episode. As our regular listeners know, we like to start off each discussion with a definition of what we're talking about. Today's topic is the fur trade. The fur trade is a worldwide industry dealing in the acquisition and sale of animal fur. Since the establishment of a world fur market in the early modern period, furs of boreal, polar, and cold temperate mammalian animals have been the most valued. Last time on our podcast. Kathleen, you went first in describing your research summary. This time it's my turn to tell everyone where I started and where I ended up. I have a kind of a interesting route this time. Uh, and root is a key word to my research. Ooh. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I began my research thinking about the oldest items in our collection here at the museum to see how and what and how many of uh, items we maybe had in relation to the fur trade or maybe uh, something from that period where the fur trade was ha actively happening. And I ended up at the National Archives of Canada. My research uh, it was really challenging to know where to start because it was such a huge topic and I really didn't know where to even start the research. I've read a lot of stuff about the fur trade over the years and different people involved in the fur trade over the years, uh, but that still didn't help me at all in any way. Um, but I started actually started by going to the Brock University Library's website and uh, putting into the super search um, the fur trade <laughs> and seeing where that took me. Nice. Uh, so I started with that and uh, the last little bit that I have on here is um, the last line in my research is the central role that Aboriginal people played in the enterprise of the fur trade. <laughs> oh my gosh, I think our discussion is going to be really cool. Great. <laughs> but our listeners are going to have to wait till after this short commercial break to hear where our research took us. Collecting, researching, and preserving your family history is challenging work. As museum professionals, we get it. What do you do with those old photographs, your mother's silverware, or your wedding gown? How do you record the stories that have been in your family forever before it's too late? The St. Catharines Museum wants to help you with these questions. 
we're offering a two-day virtual workshop to help you figure out how to organize and care for the information and materials in your own family collections. Join us remotely on Saturdays, October 24th and November 7th from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. from a screen and into the comfort of your home, St. Catherine's Museum staff will guide you through how to organize and keep track of your family records and photographs, how to care for and store family heirlooms and special collectibles, and how to write and record your family story. Registration is $50 per person and spots are limited. Register today by calling the museum at 905-984-8880 or reach out by email museum at stcatherines.ca. I really appreciate you saying that it's such a huge topic because it is an enormous topic. There's no way that one or in the past could do this topic justice. It's enormous. It's like one of the biggest pillars of Canadian yeah. history. And so what are we doing picking the fur trade? We yeah, we might know more... how to narrow our topics a little more. <laughs> we should have been more specific about what part of the fur trade we're studying. As I said before, I began my research thinking about the oldest items in our collection to see if we had anything that could be linked to the fur trade or maybe from the fur trade period or the time that's traditionally known as the fur trade period. That's pretty cool. What, what time period would you say that you focused on for that? Well, I just asked our wonderful archivist, Helen, what our oldest object was, because I knew that we probably wouldn't have anything from the 1600s yeah. or we'd probably be talking about it a lot. So like, do we have any objects from 1750? Do we have any objects from the oldest thing that we have cataloged in the collection at this moment is a, a district map of Upper Canada from 1791. And it's, a, it's actually a specific district of, uh, I'm sorry, a specific map of the District of Nassau, which was created in 1788 and was eventually renamed the Home District in 1792. And the Home District was basically sort of a straight line from Lake Ontario, where Toronto is, north to Georgian Bay, so sort of like Toronto, Peel, Barrie to Georgian Bay-ish. Sort of not a straight line, but on an angle. <laughs> so the districts were kind of northish, southish in, in Upper Canada at that time, except for the Gore District. And the Gore District is where Niagara and Hamilton were located. So kind of like Burlington to Burlington to maybe down to uh, Lake Erie, kind of straight line and then uh, around the peninsula to Niagara was the Gore district. It's like the shape of a gore. You got it, which you know <laughs> we talked about last time. Interestingly enough, <laughs> one, we talked about gores last time in our maps and mapping podcast, which you can catch wherever you're listening to this podcast. But also, isn't it funny that I started my research this time with a map? Because yes. and it like it's a coincidence because I actually started just saying, hey, do we have an old object? And like, I, I actually said to Helen, I was like, isn't our oldest object a family Bible? Because those are things that survive, yeah. that are taken care of generally and survive really easily. Um, and generally they're old. And so I, in my head, it was a family Bible, but it's actually this map. So isn't it interesting that we finished off our research last time with maps and I started off again with maps this time. It just anyway, reinforces what we had to say about maps the last time. It does reinforce what we had to say about maps. Time. What did we say about maps about last time? I can't remember, but we said it and it's on our podcast, which you can listen to. So I encourage it's you to really listen. important. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, looking at that map, the, the, this district map of NASA, which is kind of interesting, there are a number of interesting phrases on the map, in addition to sort of the actual districts that you can see. There's, uh, quote, the Great Tract of Wilderness, uh, where Perry Sound and Sudbury would be today, kind of like uh, south and east of Georgian Bay. And uh, there's the, quote, Chippewa Hunting Ground in sort of the Kitchener area, which is kind of neat. Oh, that's great. Yeah. But there are there were also a number of can, uh, canoe routes identified, uh, canoe awesome. routes specific to the fur yeah. trade. So, so some that were sort of off the Ottawa River and some off of Georgian Bay and the St. Lawrence and so on. This and that is where me... people should go back and listen to the Maps and Mapping podcast because it totally relates to what we're saying right now. Yes. <laughs> Stop what you're doing. Go back, listen to that podcast. Then come back here. Yeah. Okay, so you're back from listening to that podcast. <laughs> so anyway, all of those canoe routes led me to think about the history and the location of those fur trade canoe routes and 
how the routes and portages were decided and yeah. uh, found or, you know, so, so I'll get into that. And those are kind of the wrong words uh, that, that I eventually discovered are wrong for a reason. So of course the folks who are most likely to interpret these areas are Parks Canada and Ontario Parks because, you know, a lot of the um, canoe routes or significant canoe routes and portages are protected in uh, national or provincial parks. So the people who interpret them, that's where they are. So that's kind of neat. And uh, luckily there's a lot of interpretation available about the fur trade in those specific locations. And Parks Canada put a publication online called, uh, uh, the title is The Fur Trade Canoe Route of Canada, Then and Now. It's, oh, awesome. by, it's by Eric Morse. It was published in 1968. And his idea with the book was to retrace the steps of the fur trade routes and portages and study them in detail uh, with this book. So he was a canoe enthusiast and went out and, you know, basically retraced the, uh, the portages. And a number of different people have done this over the last 40 years. So it's a popular thing to try to do. It's hard, but it's, you know, people's, you can still do it because most of the portages and routes still exist. And like I That's said, awesome. because they're luckily protected. So. And you can't like build a subdivision on top of a lake. So that lake is always going to generally be there. So he did a bit of history in the book as well. And he said the following quote, much has been written about the history of the fur trade, but less on its geography, end quote, which makes sense. So much of the study of the fur trade, and I think you'll agree with me, Kathy, is that has been from a sort of like establishment company history, like history of the Northwest Company and uh, history of economics and and sort of macro, global, uh, industrial, uh, not industrial, sorry, it, but like the industry of the fur trade kind of history. So it's interesting that he identified that that hasn't actually been talked about how the darn thing worked. So he credited climate and fresh water with the possibility of a fur trade in that cold climate resulted in high quality fur and navigable lakes and rivers made for rapid transit of the product to market. Digging into the roots, he was talking about a whole system of water highways that included hub lakes, like or lakes that were hubs, yeah. uh, like Lake Winnipeg, Lake, Lake Athabasca and Lake Superior, with lots of rivers and lakes streaming off the main hub, providing access further into the interior. Morse also talked about the portages and gave the criteria of a portage in that it was direct. It had an acceptable gradient, because of course, up and down, straight, maybe hopefully a straight line or almost a straight line, yeah. uh, somewhat flat, and it had good footing. Of course, portages aren't already existing, and so who created them? Um, he described the portages and the conditions in which he found them uh, in the 60s, and then he surmised that most must have been routes for animals that were then adapted by indigenous peoples, and then a few had been maybe widened or more permanently updated by the fur trade companies, like the, the Grand Portage at Lake Superior had sort of been um, more permanently established, so it was more of like a secure route because it was so long. So he concluded that the fur trade was successful and possible because of the cold climate where the northern forest areas were less suitable for agricultural uh, activities, meaning that indigenous peoples were more likely to be hunters. And the transport of goods was only possible with the navigable waterways of the Canadian Shield. So um, luckily his entire book is online. So we'll put it in oh, the footnotes awesome. if you want to go read it yourself. It's actually, um, it's a fairly decent read, but uh, now I'm going to get into my <laughs> the brain explosion that happened uh, basically after he was talking about where portages came from. So I have in all caps in my notes, but wait a minute. <laughs> because his description of portages and the creation or the finding or the adapting of portages didn't feel accurate and it didn't feel like it um, honored the role of indigenous peoples in the fur trade properly. 
And so that got me thinking about a little bit of historiography about the role of Indigenous peoples in the fur trade. And I'm sorry if I'm stealing all of your commentary. You totally are not going to because I didn't really get into it that much. Uh, but before you go too far, yeah. um, I assume that everyone who's listening to this knows what a portage is. But oh, yeah. those people that don't, the reason why <laughs> portages can be so challenging is literally you're taking everything out of your boat carrying it around rapids or um, problems in the waterway that you can't navigate with your boat and then putting it all back in on the other side. So if you have to go up a portage that's like a massive mountain, uh, you're carrying a lot of heavy stuff up and down a hill. Also, you have to carry your boat. <laughs> so it's not, a, it's not an easy thing. And so portages and how they're located and where they're located is incredibly important when you're canoeing. And that's, and that's like sort of the beginnings of the system of the York boat where right. they would. Yes. Did you get into that at all? I didn't, but I remember a few years ago watching this documentary uh, show or it was a reality TV show on one of the Canadian channels where they had a bunch of people who volunteered to actually redo one of these York boat trips from York factory to, I want to say somewhere in Manitoba, what's current Manitoba. And they had to do this massively long portage with the York boat. Um, they actually, I think built the York boat as well. Right. Uh, so yeah. Uh, one of those programs, like reenactor programs. It, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I yeah, didn't get into that in my research at all, right. but you are really interesting. But the industriousness of the York boat is really interesting. And yeah. it's something that I, because the, the ships that go through the, the Welland Canal today are actually pretty small internationally. Like on international waters, our right. 225 meter boats are pretty small. And so a number of boats can fill up the big tankers that go sit in the yeah. Gulf of St. Lawrence and wait for them to do that. And it's kind of similar in a way that like sometimes you have a bunch of canoes fill up a York boat and then the York boat will make a bigger trek across the lake and that kind of thing. So yeah, so you might take like 10 York boats full of gear, we'll go up to uh, Hudson's Bay yeah. and fill up in Hudson's Bay a, a larger ship that's waiting there for it, which yeah. is similar to the Welland Canal where, you know, five ships of the Welland Canal might unload someplace where a, an ocean going ship will take all of that load and take it across the ocean. Yeah. It's just a different era of the same kind of thing happening. <laughs> and I think too, it's it, a lot of the times so what doesn't get discussed about the portages the difficulty and sort of the heat, the bugs, black flies are oh, so yes. bad. There's, you know, so much pop culture about black flies and voyagers, but also sort of the idea that the voyagers are moving so quickly that they have to have um, supply people with them to like do their cooking and organize the food and uh, organize all of their supplies and that kind of thing, because they don't have time to do that themselves. They kind of like row or paddle and then sleep and eat and then paddle and so like, it's a whole system. It's not just sort of like a leisurely portage that you might do on your own while you're camping, you know, so that that 40 meter portage you think is hard. Well, that's like joyous to, to some of these fur traders who were bringing furs down. And they're on a time time crunch. Like they have to, to answer, just like when we're at work, they have to answer to their employers yeah. to get these things done in the amount of time that they have. And sometimes the time was dependent on the, uh, the time of year and what the weather could potentially be like. And exactly. if you didn't make it, you might be stuck there for six months or something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe not six months, but let's say three months or something yeah. uh, while you're snowed in and iced in in the winter. Yeah. So it was really a life and death situation, potentially, if you got stuck someplace where you weren't prepared for it. Yeah, yeah. So super, the, the logistics are a really big part of Morse's book. So I encourage everyone to go and read it because he does a really good job of looking into like point A to point B, who was involved, how you do it, blah, 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 except for kind of left out the indigenous peoples and i want to talk about that so up until maybe the 90s and kathy you can correct me on this but up until the 90s maybe everyone is kind of dancing around who deserves credit and recognition for facilitating the true the fur trade in the first place which is the indigenous peoples uh, up until then i guess i'm guessing i would surmise that indigenous peoples were basically left out of the story or or at least placed on the margins as sort of guides and not full participants my um, research did talk a little bit about, like I did do a little bit of research. Most of my research stuck with historiography and um, there was some discussion about when it was that um, these uh, kind of unwritten histories 
or unacknowledged, really more unacknowledged histories started to come closer to the forefront. And uh, some of them say it's as early as the 1970s that they were starting to recognize that um, some of these histories uh, don't give enough credit to um, especially the Indigenous people, but also one of them spoke to um, the, uh, the French connection to the Indigenous people and then women's role in um, uh, the support, but also in the, um, the side of bearing children with yeah. marrying, okay, so. marrying for traders. So women yeah. indigenous, the women's indigenous role and a lot of uh, mixed marriages that happened at the time and the role that those mixed marriages and the offspring of those mixed marriages played in the fur trade was massive and was fairly ignored up until at least that time period um, when it started to become, you know, people were looking at it on a more micro I think on a more micro level, and I think that's when people, when historians started to, to start to look very much closer at gender history and um, those types of, you know, before that it was a lot of bigger, bigger histories and, you know, the grand story. And once people started to look in a little closer, these histories became more important and you got to see more about it. So, yeah. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. So, uh, yeah, we do have some overlap. <laughs> <laughs> With all that. So anyway, um, uh, that's kind of where the direction that I was heading is in, and the research that uh, I found along the way was in relation to sort of that attitude towards the role of Indigenous peoples in the story. And Morse's book eventually came around to acknowledging the role of Indigenous peoples in making the fur trade possible as trappers, as, as guides, and, and etc. But just barely and he he didn't really tie it all together um and he was more insinuating their role and i again maybe that's just a product of the 1960s and sort of and the the history that was available and and he kind of left the success of the fur trade solely to the brute force and the ability of the voyagers to conquer the canadian shield which is kind of that that romanticized version of the voyagers and the and the fur trade that you know, they just beat it into submission, beat the North into submission with their paddles, you know? So I, if I didn't know better though, and I was just reading this book, Sorry. I think that the trade was entirely a European venture with no indigenous participation whatsoever because he barely mentioned them beyond like sort of the establishment of uh, portages. So, so that's not really great. So I went to look at another source, which I knew was going to make me angry and it did. <laughs> so that's good. So I read, I, I read Lord Selkirk's sketch of the fur trade from ah. 1815. And I remember, I read it a couple of times, and I, but I didn't really remember the details. And so it, it just, it actually just made me newly angry. Um, he definitely, in, in sort of a, a different context, he definitely mentions the role of Indigenous people and the role that they played in making the fur trade possible but his depiction of them is horrible <laughs> and was either that indigenous peoples only participated in the fur trade because they were so alcohol dependent be and desperate for European liquor that they'd do anything, or he blamed them for corrupting the European traders who, uh, the French European traders who abandoned their European lifestyles in favor of the wilderness or he blamed them for corrupting the British traders who couldn't help but take advantage of the indigenous peoples because they were so weak. Uh, and he was basically victim blaming the indigenous peoples for making the British traders take advantage of them and for behaving like criminals. Like there was no other option uh, because it was so lawless and uncivilized. That didn't age very well, eh? No. <laughs> <laughs> A few sources mentioned the complete lack of women in the narrative, uh, as you were mentioning earlier, and not only as sort of um, women, sort of the role of women as uh, wives or being married off to cement um, trade partnerships and that kind of thing, but also like as active participants, as trappers, yeah. um, as food suppliers, uh, and you know, that kind of thing. Um, and so that got me thinking a lot about like, about the uh, popular culture images that 
um, sort of take things like Selkirk's sketch and sort of explode it into real history. Because we can't really take Selkirk's sketch as seriously as maybe historians would have 100 years ago. So like we know that that's not uh, maybe 100% accurate depiction and definitely colored by colonialism and racism. And so like how, how did we get from Selkirk to Morse's book, but also like our just popular culture idea of the fur trade. So this history and this narrative and the documentation is pretty typical for the fur trade story. And when you hear and see and consume the Eurocentric version of it, it really is easy to see the heroic voyagers um, as the only version that you know. And so it's not hard to see that it, it's become easily become the foundation of colonial and racist attitudes towards indigenous peoples for the last 400 years, which are attitudes that some of those attitudes still persist today. Um, but also sort of the foundation of Canadian identity as sort of the, the bushwhackers of the North. And uh, so like that, that's all tied up. It's very messy, obviously, but it's all tied up together. And Selkirk's value statements about Indigenous participation based on their alcoholism and addiction um, is super hurtful and damaging to Indigenous peoples in the stories, but also to Indigenous people living today. So this isn't something that should be thought of as from 1815 and stuck in 1815. It's actually something that, that persists uh, in the undercurrent. Um, you know, it's a part of our thread of yeah. Canadian identity and history. And so it's like, it's there as as part of the, um, almost think of it as like uh, the, the, the nutrients in the soil, you know, the, yeah. the histories and the stories that we consume today are growing in this, this soil that has some of that in it, you know. Yeah. So why is it that it's so persistent, that, that heroic idea of the fur trade is so persistent? Well, partly because the depiction of Indigenous peoples in these Eurocentric stories and partly because of popular culture, again, because it's such a foundation of our identity. Our idea of early Canada, picture early Canada from this time period in your head, what do you see? Well, I'm probably not the best one to ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> but I see, I, if, you, if you picture the fur trade and if you picture early Canada in your head, I see you know, a canoe filled with voyagers, Sure. right? And why is that? It's because um, the fur trade depiction is from a primarily French and British uh, side, and it's depicted as a colonial activity to purposely sort of uh, depict the conquering of uh, the wilderness, yeah. basically, and also the economic uh, success of the of the trade. Um, but it actively leaves out indigenous peoples on the margins to sort of put Europeans on this, this pedestal of uh, heroism or heroism. And one of the culprits, I feel bad calling her a culprit, but she maybe is an unknowing culprit. I'll be, I'll be nice to her, is uh, Frances Ann Hopkins. Uh, she was a, a great and famous artist, but I think she was culprit number one, in my opinion, for the pop, for, for sort of uh, enshrining these images uh, in our popular culture and in our sort of visual history. Hopkins married HBC official Edward Hopkins and traveled with him in the mid-1800s. She made sketches of her journey and turned many of them into paintings which have become national oh, tre yes. treasures. Yes. Her paintings mostly were done in the 1860s. When you were talking about this, I can picture that one of her paintings in my head. I thought I have a book on my desk. You, the viewers or listeners can't see it, but it's a book about uh, it is. Shooting George the Rapids. And it has one of hers on the cover, but it wasn't the one that I keep picturing. The one oh, I picture yes. is always of the woman dressed in the Victorian style dress sitting in the middle of the canoe of all of these voyagers with her, with her riding hat yes. yeah yeah um, yeah that's called uh paddling by the falls or canoeing by the falls or something, something like, like that. that the one on the book is called shooting rapids i know these names because i've looked at these paintings hundreds of times uh they're in every book about the fur trade they are the primary uh visual 
um, depiction of the fur trade and it permeates our all of our histories whether from you know yeah. uh, from the 1860s when she painted them up to today I mean they're on the cover of that book and that book was written what 10 years ago 15 years ago oh even maybe even more than that right, okay. I feel like I've had it for 10 years but I could be wrong <laughs> Uh, 2007. Right. So it's been, yeah, you know, to, uh, her paintings are still used to depict the fur trade today. today. Yeah. Right. And her romantic vision of the fur trade isn't 100% accurate. Obviously, I described it as a romantic vision. Because the but, fur trade was dying at this point. Mm -hmm. So yeah. her representation is definitely a romanticized version of it. It was close to the end of the, it was definitely not the heyday of the fur mm -hmm. trade by 1860s. Um, and many of her images, as wonderful to look at as they are, leave Indigenous peoples on the sidelines or out of the picture altogether. And because this is the main visual representation of this history, um, especially these paintings are sort of revered um, and sort of worshipped in our national identity and popular culture. It has informed and cemented the vision or the uh, the visual history of the fur trade ever since. It's also confused our identity as hardy Canadians and bushwhackers, as I mentioned, in, <laughs> um, as I mentioned earlier, that like there aren't indigenous peoples in some of these canoes. So who are these guys? These are you know the hardy Canadian voyagers conquering the wilderness, you know, yeah. and so that's kind of been mixed in with our national identity, and it's for but it's also perpetuated our ignoring of those who actually participated and actually facilitated and actually made possible such an important industry in our history. Um, those like women, uh, Métis people, Indigenous peoples, all in favor of the heroic voyageurs. Mm -hmm. And I ended up at the National Archives of Canada, not literally, but figuratively, because the archive holds you know, the most amount of Francis M. Hopkins paintings. Some, some museums have one or two. The Glenbow has one. I think the one, there's a museum in Winnipeg that has one, but most of them are at National Archives. And so we even hold them in our national identity as not just pieces to put on display in a museum, but they are archival historical sources. Yeah. And that's how, that's our vision and that's how we've informed our uh, vision of the historic fur trade. Yeah, that's awesome. So with that, <laughs> so with that, we're going to take a quick break to talk about our virtual museum lecture series. Hi everyone, it's Adrian here at the museum. We are so excited to welcome you back to the virtual museum lecture series presented by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Center this fall. We had an incredibly fun and successful spring series, featuring stories of horses, shipyards, memorials, canal builders, and freedom seekers. Now we're back, after a little summer break, with new and exciting historical adventures to fill your Tuesday evenings. Join us this fall and mark your calendars for a great lineup of local history lectures you can enjoy from the comfort of your home. September is all about our annual guided spirit walks at Victoria Lawn Cemetery. We'll have historian Adam Montgomery kick off the series on September 15th with a lecture about cemeteries and monuments with a focus on Victoria Lawn Cemetery. Then I'll be here on September 29th with a special behind the scenes look at our virtual presentation of the annual tours through Victoria Lawn, featuring stories and memories from the cast and crew of our guided spirit walks. October is just as exciting and will feature another special guest, Natasha Henry, historian and president of the Ontario Black History Society. Natasha will be giving a talk on the history of Ontario's racially segregated schools on October 13th. On October 27th, I'll be back to discuss the somewhat lost and mostly forgotten history of the Third Welland Canal. On November 10th, we'll present our emotional and touching First World War series, Stories from the Front, with stories from our collection about experiences at home and at the front from St. Catharines. On November 24th, I'll be joined by our public programmer, Sarah Nixon, to discuss a report commissioned by the United States Congress Freedmen's Inquiry Commission, written by Samuel Gridley Howe in 1863 on the condition of freedom seekers in Canada. 
local interviews with both freedom seekers and recognizable names of the city's established businessmen opens up new histories we aren't used to hearing. And finally, on December 8th, our curator Kathleen Powell will present a talk on local fashion and our new exhibit, Marking Time, which features important moments of life and the textiles that go with them. Join us this fall and mark your calendars for an exciting virtual museum lecture series. Register by donation by calling the museum at 905-984-8880 or by emailing the museum at museum at stcatherines.ca. Welcome back to One Hour in the Past. Uh, Kathy, it's your turn to talk about your research. Excellent. So I went in a totally different direction. Um, I mean, obviously, we're still t I'm still talking about the fur trade, so it's not a completely different direction. But um, after I did my super search about the fur trade. Um, it's almost like you took just a different route, different canoe route, <laughs> and a different portage, exactly. but we still end up at the same trading post. Exactly. <laughs> Um, so the super search started me out by looking at uh, the review of um, a book that was written about the fur trade, um, a Canadian historian who or a historian who'd written a book about the Canadian fur trade. Actually, the book was about the fur trade in North America, not about Canadian fur trade. Uh, and so it talked a little bit, like I said, the first thing I started with was this uh, talk about, firstly, this review said, this book is great, but it ignores all of these histories that are important to the fur trade. Uh, and one of the things that it mentions is um, that the, the book kind of glosses over the fact that half of the um, people that were involved in the fur trade were Indigenous. So, you know, we always think about the fur trade from the, the Eurocentric, well, we, mostly because we're European descended, descended people. And frequently that's kind of where we start from our own frame of reference. Well, and I think too, like the, just like the history that we consume. And as I mentioned right. in my research, the pop culture that we consume, the stuff that's put in front of us is Eurocentric. Right. And as historians, it's kind of our job to break that uh, um, kind of cycle of what is the thing that we're normally used to looking at and see where we can find the truth uh, as much of the truth as we can in history um, to to tell the, a, a fuller story as much as we can. And so, you know, this book review, you know, this, I didn't stay on this for very long, but it did talk about that, talked about the half of the um, people involved being Indigenous, it talked about the missing histories, like uh, the fact of the, the importance of um, mixed, um, mixed race people who were involved in the fur trade and how the fur trade would not have survived if it hadn't have been to that for that. And that really only happened because indigenous women were marrying French and English fur traders or French and English uh, explorers who were in uh, that part of the world. And so I thought that was a really interesting take, uh, but I didn't want to stick just on this book review because I was really more interested in finding out what has been written about the fur trade in Canada. Um, but there was a little reference in there to um, the fact that some of the reason why the history of the fur trade became what it is or what it was at least up until the 1970s is because of this uh, trend in historical writing that a lot of people blame this historian Frederick Jackson Turner who is famous for writing about the idea of manifest destiny <laughs> in the United States and this God-given right that uh, Americans who were Europeans at the time, Americans had to take over all of the land that was there, no matter who was on it, because they were um, chosen by God to do that. And, um, and so some of these histories became this way and you're very Eurocentric, especially of the fur trade, because it's in that time period. And uh, it was actually a trend in historical writing at the time. And so that kind of got me a little bit onto historiography of uh, the fur trade. So I didn't spend as much time actually talking about or looking at the details of the fur trade um, as I did looking at how the fur trade has been written about <laughs> over uh, by historians over the years. And so uh, I found um, a book called um, 
the Fur Trade in Canada, an introduction to Canadian economic history. I'm not really an economic historian in general, uh, but this most of my research stuck to economic history in this in this particular instance. Uh, and this book was written by Harold Innes, and it was originally written in 1930, but it was reprinted in with a new introduction in 1999 and 2001. And I could, obviously didn't get through the whole book. I only had an hour. Uh, so I only made it through the introduction and the, the new introduction to the book, which was super interesting because it spoke to the historiography of the fur trade. And it talked about how the fur trade has been written about. Um, so the interesting thing I thought I found was that um, this speaks to the idea that the fur trade story actually covers a lot of histories. So, you know, sometimes people say I'm just a military historian or I'm just a social historian um, and I don't cover economics in my writing. Um, this Harold Innes who wrote this history of the fur trade originally, it's a big broad history that was trendy at the time in historical writing and it covered everything and this author who did the introduction, he speaks to that and says the fur trade is a big story, it covers so many types of history. So he says it covers social history which includes the clash between colonial and indigenous cultures covers economic history, such as the development of the West as a result of Eastern colonial and European needs. Uh, it covers transportation history related to the displacement of the canoe with the York boat, which we talked about a little bit. It covers political history related to the French and English rivalry, uh, the American Revolution and other related political history. And it covers business history related to the Hudson's Bay Company and the Northwest Company and how that industry played a strong role in the development of our continent. So, um, I mean, we gave ourselves an hour to look at something that could take <laughs> a lifetime to study or more because yeah. it covers just right here. I talked about five different types of history that you could just focus in on. Uh, and uh, and each one of those you could focus in on a hundred different things. So under social history, they didn't even talk about the social history of the lives of the people who were part of the fur trade and how did they get by in the north or you know out in these uh, really remote locations and you know how did they get news back and forth? All of those kinds of things. So you could focus so much in so many different ways. And but I thought this was a really interesting way to look at history writing in general in that, you know, just reading one source doesn't tell you much about anything. And so as historians, you know, it kind of made me take a little bit of pause to think, make sure that I do it my due diligence from a history perspective, I guess, to try to try and cover as much as I can. Uh, but again, like it would take you a lifetime sometimes to study some topics if you wanted to do them justice. Um, and for us doing museum work here, we only have so much time to research before we have to put out a product for everybody else to see. I can't sit in my office for the next 20 years and research <laughs> the fur trade. As much <laughs> so as we can like have an to, exhibit uh, in 20 years. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so anyway, I thought that was really interesting. Um, and then uh, it went on to talk a little bit about the connection of the fur trade to the cod fishery in Canada. So I had never really thought about how exactly did the fur trade start? Like we always think about the fur trade being connected directly to this fad, and it does talk about this eventually, being connected to the fad of um, felt hats in Europe. All of a sudden this takes off and everybody wants a felt hat and there's no place to get those furs except for in a place where those animals still live, which isn't urban Europe, essentially. <laughs> but I had never really considered the connection to the fact that there were already a significant number of Europeans in North America due to the cod fishery. And that was the biggest business in Canada, in North America at the time. We're talking about the 1600s here. Uh, and it was really our first big export out of our country uh, to Europe. Um, and that kind of helped to develop the fur trade because it 
it gave a little bit of a, um, an example of an export industry from North America to Europe. Like in it's sort of the, the beginnings of the infrastructure of exporting across right. the ocean, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I thought that was, that was interesting. But then the fur trade was actually the really first economic venture that spanned the entire continent. So the cod fishery obviously is really fairly regional because has to be in the ocean where the cod are. <laughs> You're not going to find cod out on the prairies. You're not going to find them in a tree. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so the fur trade was larger because of geography. And it was interesting that you talked about geography earlier because um, this, uh, this book actually talked quite a bit about the history of Canada being the history of the geography of Canada. It's, it's really a, the, the reason why Canada developed the way it did was because of the way the geography exists in our country. Uh, I know that makes se total sense when I say it out loud, but uh, um, it, it was an interesting, the way that this historian talked about it was really interesting. Um, and so the fur trade as this fully continental venture uh, drew in all these diverse regions into a single network. And then it linked that network to the world economic system that already was existing that was uh, tied to Western Europe. And then of course that was also tied at the same time to the Caribbean uh, through uh, trade in um, slaves and people or people and sugar and rum and you know all of those things. And so you can see how the fur trade is starting to get sucked into this big huge world economic uh, uh, kind of maelstrom that is is being created at that particular time. So I thought that was really interesting because we all, I always, I don't know about you, but I always think of the fur trade as like very like- um, Isolated? North America, yeah. North American, right? But in actual fact, it's this bigger thing that connects to a larger system that already, that's starting to, to form and the fur trade helps it to form even more. It would be interesting to see what the HBC or the Northwest Company was trading in, like in terms of stocks and shares, like who is buying Northwest Company shares and were those, you know, shareholders, people who owned stocks in, you know, sugar plantations and that right. kind of thing, like, right? Like what's the, the How did they um, diversify? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the cross-pollination of that kind of, like that money? Is plantation sugar money and slave money funding the HBC entrance right. into North America. Like, I'm sure it's yeah, possible yeah. to find some information, but yeah, that would be really interesting to see. Um, so then we talked, I found some more, uh, you know, it, of course talked about the beaver pelt hats because you have to talk about that, this huge fashion rage, which is amazing that this ginormous fashion rage that basically took up, you know, 200 years <laughs> of fashion really created probably the 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 basis of uh, modern uh, world economy because of the the need to get nice hats that shed water <laughs> warm hats that shed water <laughs> it's terrible so it talked it again like we've just talked about that this the fur trade set in motion this circular and uh, cumulative trading process that propelled industry across the country. So because it, as it grew, it propelled more growth across the country, which totally makes sense. I think anyone who's looked at the history of our country would see that. Um, and then it talked about that the idea of geography creating Canada as a country. And one good example of that is this French and English kind of connection, uh, the struggle between the competition between the French who were here and the English who were here, and each one of them trying to get a foothold in the trade in furs in the country. And so, you know, the reason why um, French are where they are now, and where the English are where they are, essentially is because of the nature of the fur trade competition at the time. So the French, because they had already kind of started in the, the beginning of it, and they were here for the cod fishery as well at the start, um, 
had kind of taken over the St. Lawrence River area uh, and that part of the trade that brought people, because you mentioned you need to follow the waterways to get through Canada. There was no highway, no way to drive your car through the middle of the country to get to the beavers. Uh, so you, uh, uh, so the French have taken over this river network that connects to the St. Lawrence. And so the English are kind of left out. So they choose to go up and over through the Northern route and down through Hudson's Bay and James Bay and uh, come at the fur trade in that direction, which explains why English is in that part of the country and French is in that part of the country. And so the development of our country as a whole can a lot of it go be tied back to the uh, the original geography and geographic challenges that the French and English had. Um, challenges and the barriers of the uh of the Canadian Shield too, right? Like the right. watershed changes and the flow yeah. of water goes north. I forget where it is, somewhere between Sudbury and Timmins. And, yeah. uh, you know, the French had French might have been up that far, but they weren't as concerned if the British were up there because it wasn't going to impact their routes to right. Montreal, right? So. And then the, the connection of the fur trade to other parts of the country uh, that be, as the fur trade grew, there was a requirement to connect to other things. So an example of that would be that you might not find uh, the animals that you need for the fur trade in the middle of the uh, grasslands of the prairies, but you can't feed all these people that are part of the fur trade network unless you have a food source. And a lot of the food source was found on the prairies. So the connection to the food, a food source to feed your industry essentially um, as you started to deplete potentially the, the smaller food source that you might have found uh, in the northern areas. Uh, and that is what kind of created uh, this move to, uh, to create settlements in that part of the country. So I thought that was really interesting. You know, you know, you always think about how did the country get settled. And most of the time we think about it in a 19th century, late 18th and early 19th century perspective of, um, you know, Wilfrid Laurier uh, creating government policy that encourages people to start farms out on the Western Plains. But before that, it had already been starting that uh, encouragement to uh, create farming and uh, to use the, the prairies as a way to feed uh, industry in Canada. I'm using air quotes for those people who can't see me, which is everybody, um, uh, to uh, to help feed the industry here in Canada at the time, which was the fur trade. I can confirm she used air quotes. <laughs> so this uh, also goes into the idea that the fur trade success was actually influenced not just by geography as well, but also by the goals of the Aboriginal people that lived here, goals and strategies, they were active participants in this industry. And the, the while many of the histories uh, kind of gloss over that now, a lot of the uh, early colonial histories especially would gloss over the, the power that the Aboriginal um, participants in the fur trade would have had in how the fur trade developed. Um, it was an important, really important part of how for the fur trade worked because uh, you needed Aboriginal people to be able to keep this trade going. Um, and then of course the, uh, the fur trade was also very tied to the changing economic uh, fortunes of the European countries. So if all of a sudden fur hats were not the rage, nobody wanted them anymore, uh, of course that was going to be a problem. And then of course later on in the 19th century, late 18th and early 19th century, as there were a lot of uh, colonial wars, um, warfare would have had a huge impact on uh, the ability of uh, trade to get back and forth between North America and Europe and did have a huge uh, impact. And then of course, Canadian entrepreneurship was also something that impacted the fur trade. And by, you know, we're talking like 1700s, late 1700s, early 1800s, uh, before the War of 1812, essentially that, you know, period before that, uh, Canadian entrepreneurship was really growing. And what that looked like compared to what it looked like in Europe prior to that uh, would have impacted how the fur trade worked, obviously. Um, so I thought that was really an interesting look at things. Oh, and then there was some economic history, which I found kind of interesting. And it talked about this idea of fixed overhead costs. <laughs> 
I never think of the fur trade this way. And so I thought this was uh, interesting because it said that the expansion of the fur trade network was impacted by uh, the economies of France and to a lesser extent, England and Canada. And part of this had to do with fixed overhead costs. It costs a lot of money to build the infrastructure to support the trade but the number of furs that they were collecting at the time was not enough to pay for the infrastructure and to pay for the profit that they needed to be able to create more infrastructure. <laughs> so it was like this really uh, crazy um, circular, uh, you need money to build infrastructure, to get money to build infrastructure, to get money to build infrastructure. And so it was like kept going around and around. Um, and, uh, and then on top of that is the idea that as there's more competition, the price of fur comes down. So uh, if there's too many, too much competition in the market, just like anything, even today, if there's too much competition in the market, if your price has to go down, can you still afford to keep your business running uh, considering the infrastructure? Um, I think a really great, uh, to me, I saw a parallel to uh, the Target stores opening all across North America when they all opened. It was this great thing, you know, we've got all this, this wealth to be able to open all these stores, but then the economy changes and can you afford to continue to have all of this infrastructure in such faraway places? Uh, can you support the infrastructure at the profit margin that you think that you can make? Uh, and the fur trade was exactly the same, which I never really and think about. In an already sort of fluctuating retail market, yes. right? That's starting to move away from big box. So like, yeah, it's a, it would have been a huge risk. It would, and imagine the risk so that was like an American company coming across the border, right? Imagine the risk. Imagine trying to convince investors that we're just going to send some people across the ocean and bring back some beaver fur, you know, like it's, it's no big deal, you know, like, oh, but by the way, we need ships and we need canoes and we need offices and we need forts and we need trading posts and we need translators and we need people, you know, and we need food and we need alcohol and we, you know, yeah, yeah. you know, your, your, your overhead costs, like, you're right. Like how, how could you not sell a beaver pelt for like, a thousand dollars at that point to cover any of your costs and so that's that kind of goes back to my question like how did they finance the fur trade is the fur trade actually financed out of the caribbean you know what i mean like wouldn't that be just yeah 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 something i bet you finance to start with yeah i cannot be the first i cannot be the first to ask that question so it must be out there but yeah we need more than an hour so that kind of came to the idea of the tension between centralization and decentralization in the fur trade and uh, which kind of goes back a little bit to the early talk about uh, those histories that are hidden that we don't hear a lot about in that people who were part of the fur trade, especially um, that weren't in like an urban area. So, you know, like there were offices for um, the Northwest company in Montreal. Right. And um, I think, I could be wrong. But uh, anyway, um, like people that were working out in the fur trade, you know, in northern Ontario, what is now northern Ontario, had to have some initiative to be able to keep their trade going, however they needed to do that without having to always answer back to the center, you know, and so those hidden histories that we don't hear about, those are the people that kept the fur trade going because, you know, the mother who has uh, you know, a family of maybe a couple of sons who are part of the fur trade or husband's part of the fur trade. She's connected to an indigenous population in the near to the area where she lives, potentially. What is her story and how she kept that part of the fur trade going? Um, that to me is super important, but we never hear about it especially because like you're cut off in the winter right so yeah i if you think you hear you hear more of it from the sort of uh, the literate fur trade postmasters, you know who are out there out there in the winter if they don't if they don't come into montreal they're out there for the winter and you sort of hear about those stories of like the last piece of mail going out like this is <laughs> and then you know, you show up in the spring and the guy got ate by a bear and you, like, <laughs> nobody knew. And he's just, you know. Or, somebody had to take on the, the role of the post after yeah, that. Someone exactly, had to make right? 
without a centralized person like the CEO making that decision. Yeah, and you're up there with no resources coming from the company, right? So if something yeah. happens, like if you have to make a repair to the fort or the your house or whatever, you're you're on your own. And a lot of it's you hear a lot of funny stories about Europeans who kind of like you know want to go to go for an adventure and become you know, either company men or voyagers or whatever. And they are solely unprepared for the, not only the winter, but just like the, the work. So like being a clerk up at a fort, isn't just writing things down. Like you got a real hard work, like chopping wood and stuff like that. And a lot of people weren't prepared for that. Yeah. And I think that we've never, we don't always think about that side of the development of industry in Canada essentially. Um, and that's kind of where my last little bit of research ended up in this idea of um, Canadian economic success uh, depending on export-led development. So what did the fur trade do to future economic development in Canada? Uh, it's a great example of how uh, natural resources being exported out of your country, what does that actually do for your country's development? Does it actually do anything? And then, so this author does have a kind of like a pro and con kind of approach to it, uh, saying that, you know, some historians have said this, but other historians have said that. Um, and essentially, uh, I'll read you the quote that I, I have from this book. The extraction and transportation of staples, such as furs, generated little economic production of other goods and did not become significant inputs in Canadian industrial production. The greatest economic multiplier effect and techno technological advances took place in the transportation and communication sectors and the Aboriginal world. Because staple exporting depended on linking remote production areas with external markets. So this is apparently this whole staples theory, this historical theory or economic theory that works on the idea that um, it's all about like if you're exporting things, you're not getting any growth in your own country um, for your own development of things. And I think we've seen that in many industries. In Canada. <laughs> but I thought I'd never really put that connection together of the only things that actually were growing from a an, um, an industrial perspective was communications and transportation and the Aboriginal um, people and how the Aboriginal world was developing, developing at the time. Uh, and I thought that was really kind of an aha moment for me. I mean, I should have known it, but it was a little bit of an aha moment. A lot of those big trends are right in front of us all the time. And because we live them, we don't necessarily always connect them to the past, right? So anyway, let me finish off here. It did go into something called the Laurentian School of Thought in Canadian history. So if you're interested in more historiography of uh, economic, economic history in Canada, that's a way to look. Uh, and this idea of an economic component to diplomacy. Uh, and this really is about uh, the period uh, imperial period of imperial rivalries, which actually goes up to about the end of the War of 1812, uh, where they were uh, courting Aboriginal allies, um, that the courting of Aboriginal allies was essential to English, French, and Americans in their um, in the strategically important Eastern Great Lakes and Ohio regions, uh, which is why the, this author puts emphasis on the crucial role of the fur trade, um, because that's played such a huge role in the political evolution of North America in that period, in that place and time. Um, and that that just emphasized the central role that Aboriginal people, which kind of comes back to my first line, which is emphasizing the central role that Aboriginal people played in the, uh, the enterprise. Um, and which also is really unfortunate that in the century after that, all of the histories erased a good chunk of that central role, even though they were so important to that development uh, in the first place. So that's where I got. I kind of left it because I was at, I actually went five minutes over my one hour. You heard it here first, audience. <laughs> I'm sorry. She went five minutes over. Uh, so I had to leave it at that. That but, puts uh, you in one hour in the past jail. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Didn't I go? I went over five minutes last week or last time. Yeah, that's true. Um, so I, I, it was an interesting foray into economic history, which I don't necessarily do a lot of on a regular basis. You probably do more because you're more um, connected to the Welland Canal. 
uh, and the history of the Welland Canal has a lot of economic history attached to it, but uh, I normally don't spend as much time on economic history as I probably should because it's super interesting. It is, and it's easy to, but I should say, like, don't feel bad because it's easy to totally forget about the global trends when you're looking at, like, a specific narrative uh, of a specific sort of... Um, organization or like industry growth yeah. pattern that kind of thing like economics you can get so 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 far down that you kind of forget about global trends and like link the export trade to the fur trade through to today's well like well and canal is could be done you know like it's yeah. uh, or like what i was saying earlier like i'm super interested to see who financed the fur trade yeah. that would be a cool cool movie and it for me <laughs> for no one else and that would be a really cool thesis i'm sure i'm sure somebody's looked at it but anyway. right because this wasn't a government enterprise yeah like i think we we don't mention this at all in either one of our research but uh both large companies that financed the fur trade uh were not government companies the northwest company and the hudson's bay company were basically shareholders a group of shareholders who got together and are basically financing the fur trade um and uh so that's really interesting as a, a development country a way that our country developed uh, when lots of people think it was you know government financed exploration sent people over here to find a route to india well that's not necessarily the case there's way more to it than that <laughs> it's part of the sales pitch but right yeah yeah <laughs> well coming up on some future episode in some future season of one hour in the past we'll get into who financed the fur trade that'll be your, your homework <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming down the rabbit hole with us. Make sure to subscribe to One Hour in the Past and the museum's other podcast, Museum Chat Live, on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, so you don't miss any of our historical adventures. We're always looking for ideas to spend one hour in the past researching. If you have a topic you'd like to see us tackle, perhaps who financed the fur trade, connect with us at facebook.com slash Museum or at SDC Museum on Twitter and Instagram. We're so looking forward to chatting with you all again on our next episode of One Hour in the Past. Tune in next time for our rabbit hole research of the FLQ crisis. Ba -ba -bum. One Hour in the Past is produced by us, Kathleen Powell and Adrian Petrie, and brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Centre and the City of St. Catharines.